we're going to talk about confusion. And uh, it seems like I'm starting out in kind of a confused way. But one of my favorite little stories about pastors preaching sermons and different things, and you should be thankful that I don't prepare and preach the way that I used to because it was pretty bad at the beginning. And maybe you think it's still bad. But there was this uh, preacher, the, the story goes, that he preached for 50 years. And I don't know if I've told this before. It's about the wife with the eggs in the refrigerator. I don't know if I've told this one before. But uh, for 50 years he preached in one church. And then he, you know, it was time to retire. And they were celebrating and everything. And he had never really noticed before because his wife took care of all the cooking and cleaning and, you know, buying groceries and getting them out of the fridge. And he hardly ever even got in the refrigerator. But he looked in there and after they had this big celebration after church, he was ready for a snack, you know, about 4.30, 5 in the afternoon after all this. And he looks in the fridge and he sees this metal box that he'd never noticed before. And it was a very old box. I mean, it was like something from the farm days way you know way back way back when and it was in the fridge and he opens up the box and he sees uh three eggs and he and a just like five wads of money and he's counting through the money and it just hundred after hundred after hundred and it it came to thirty eight thousand dollars and he's like what has she been doing like what is going on where'd she get all this money and so he he asks her when she gets back everything's peaceful and he says well what's with the eggs in the box in the fridge and she says oh you've never noticed that before and he says no i never get into the fridge she says well every time you preach a bad sermon i take one egg from the you know our supply of, of chickens and everything and they had them in egg cartons in the fridge and i put it in that metal box instead of for us to consume i put it in in the metal box and he is just like overwhelmed because for three sermons in 50 years to go bad he's honored and he says oh wow and he just feels great and then he says so what's up with the thirty-eight thousand dollars?" and she says well every time i hit a dozen i sold them <laughs> so let's hope let's hope that this sermon is good um when there's confusion in your life it kind of casts a a, a a dark shadow over everything right when there's something that you can't figure out like why did things go wrong um you know what i'm talking about i mean what what is confusion what do you what do you think it is don't we have confusion hill south of here right on the way I don't know if that's in Humboldt or Mendocino County, but it really is in Humboldt. Uh, how would you describe confusion to somebody who wouldn't know what confusion is? Disoriented? Not at peace. Not at peace. Very good. That's really good. Other thoughts? Chaotic. Chaotic. Can you think of any times in your life when you've been confused? All the time? Did somebody say that? Um, I have I have an illustration, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go around to the back because we have our computer console back here. There's a lot of confusing things in our society, and this isn't the main point. My main point is that God gives hope despite confusion in our life. That's what I want to talk to you about. And we're gonna look at John seven today, and 
even ahead of time, like how to apply this message is when you go through confusing times, realize that God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of order and peace. And that if you're confused and you don't understand things and you're perplexed, you might not have to figure it out because the trap could be that you might think in order for me to have peace, I better have all this figured out about a relationship, about your marriage, about a divorce, about somebody dying, about a tragedy that you've gone through or a hardship or, or why you got an F on a paper or why somebody doesn't like you or why it didn't work out, you know, for a certain thing. We get confused about things, but you might not have to untangle the mess. I picture like a big ball of yarn. You might not have to untangle all of it. It might just be something that you realize, you know what, Lord, I don't understand this, but I'm going to receive your peace. Because God doesn't say that we have to figure everything out or have a total, you know, good understanding of everything. We just have to trust him, okay? So let me give you an illustration, though, that I find interesting and somewhat disturbing of confusion in our society. So I read an article on Facebook about how if you do a Google search, which most all of us use, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to down my PowerPoint and bring up Google here. Now, this is interesting. So you guys might uh, Google something, right? Can you? I don't know if you can see this very good. I'm not even sure if there's a way to make it bigger. Uh, but we'll go ahead and do it. Okay, let's say some of us are senior citizens. I'm going to put in a search, seniors can, and then the, oh, and space, if you can read these, Google does this autofill where supposedly based on people putting in a search, it puts in the rest of the words. Seniors can move. Is that what you're looking for? Or seniors can shumka. I don't know what that is. Seniors can't afford prescriptions. Seniors can't afford housing. Seniors can dance. Seniors can be fun. Can seniors play JV? Can seniors get food stamps? Can seniors wear contact lenses? Can seniors go to college for free? So supposedly the way Google and Bing and other search engines for the internet work is that you would type this in and this is the autofill. Are you guys familiar with this? Say amen. Let's say, uh, instead of just seniors, let's say women. Women can, and then space, women can vote. Women can do it. Women can do anything. So very positive, affirming, and these things are stuff that people would be looking for. Now think about this also. These things are are true, right? Um, it, it might be a matter of perspective, but it's true that women can vote. It's true that women can do it, whatever it is, you know, like succeed, uh, be a mom, whatever. Women can do anything and whatever. Let's say men can. And let's see if something truthful comes up. Men can, men can have periods. Men can have babies. Men can get breast cancer. Men can have periods too. Men can think about nothing. (laughs) Men can cook. So it's interesting because as best I understand the way God made us, men cannot actually have periods or have babies. And there's people who study Google and they're finding that there's an increasing distortion of information 
through artificial intelligence that they use these algorithms to do various things and supply us with information that, you know, a lot of it's true and a lot of it's out there, but as a search engine, there are some interesting things going on with how we use the internet and how information is flowing. Do you, do you get it? Does that make sense? Because the first thing that you type in in a certain search uh, might not be the reality of what, what um, you might be being fed information that is, has an agenda behind it, is, is what I'm saying. And I'm not trying to be like um, conspiracy theory or anything, but as the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who I think was the greatest theologian, Christian theologian of the 20th century, I think, other than maybe C.S. Lewis, he said that, you know, there are conspiracy theories, but he said it is true that some people do conspire. And when we see these different things, we might get confused as far as, well, what's really true? Uh, and so there's confusion out there, and there might be confusion uh, in your life. As we go through this passage today in John chapter 7, we're going to start in John chapter 7, verse 11. And I think I left my clicker back there. Would somebody uh, run it up to me, if you don't mind? I I apologize. Um, But when we go through this passage, you're going to see some confusion about a lot of things. You're going to see that there's confusion. Thanks, Mike. There's confusion in this passage about... And I want you to be looking for it as we read it, and I'll have it overhead. There's confusion over whether Jesus is good or bad. There's confusion over Jesus, uh, how he received his teaching and his learning. There's confusion over uh, the crowd saying Jesus has a demon, which is a way of saying that he's crazy. There's going to be confusion over religious authorities' response to Jesus. There's going to be confusion over knowing where Jesus came from and the expectations of, of where the Messiah would come from. There's going to be confusion over how many miracles to expect from the Christ. There's going to be confusion about where Jesus says he's going and what he even said. There's going to be confusion over Jesus' identity and confusion over their expectation of his origin. Where does he come from? Is it Galilee? We thought that Bethlehem was where the Messiah would be born. There's going to be division, infighting, and a lot of different things. So, it's, it's really a passage that displays human confusion. So let's go ahead and uh, go through this. In John chapter 7, verse 11, we begin and we see the following. The Jews were looking for him, looking for Jesus at the feast. Now what the feast is, is it's the Feast of Tabernacles that lasts seven days there in Jerusalem. So this isn't just a one-time Thanksgiving dinner, but it was a celebration that they did as a national community at the capital. Now, not the whole nation was there, but a lot of people were there for seven days, okay? And so the officials, the people are saying, where is he? Where's Jesus? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So you can see that there's a coercion among the leaders that people don't want to speak out. This is a, uh, you know, you might think of Hong Kong and what's going, I don't know if you've tracked that in the news, but what's going on over in Hong Kong right now is very, very scary for a people who've lived in liberty for decades, even, even more than a century under British rule, and then now the communist regime of, of China 
is, is, is cracking down just on basic, simple human rights, like the right to say whatever you want, the right to think what you want, the right to report it in the press, okay? So in this society, they were afraid of the authority, so no one spoke openly of Jesus. Now, time is everything. You know what the rule of, of real estate is? Tell me. Location, location, location. Uh, here in this passage, it's not where, but it's when. This is six months, so it would be time, 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 rather than location, location, location. It's six months before Jesus will go to the cross. It's October, and we know that as Easter. This was October of the following, or the previous year. So his crucifixion will follow in the next year, and it's about six months. And so there's tension here among the people, and tension with the religious leaders. About the middle of the feast, so that would be like three, four days into it, right? Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So how it worked in their day is that the best and the brightest among the students, because all the little boys would get instruction, and, and girls some instruction, but it's really been the spread of the Christian gospel throughout the Western uh, world that has has raised the... Uh, raised women and children and protected women and children. But the Jewish boys at that time, and the girls would receive some instruction too, but in synagogue they'd have men on one side and women on the other, and there'd be a, you know, like a divide between them. So even families would separate like that. But they would receive instruction, but the boys received more instruction, and the best and the brightest would continue to go on to school, and the very best and the very brightest, like Saul of Tarsus, would sit under Israel's finest rabbis. In fact, they had a position above a rabbi called a rabban. And Gamaliel was one of those. He's mentioned in the scriptures, but we know from, from Judaism that he was one of the great teachers of Israel. Uh, Nicodemus is called a teacher. There was another guy named Hillel that we don't have in the Bible, but Judaism says he was a great uh, teacher of this era. And so they would go on. Jesus didn't go through that system. Do you know why? What was Jesus up to? He was working. We think he was taking care of his family and didn't have that opportunity. And at some point, the studies, maybe like teenage years, were cut off and he didn't continue on under a school of a rabbi. Uh, he received his teaching from the Father, and we're going to learn about that. But at age 12 even, he's in the temple, and the leaders of Israel are like amazed at his ability to talk about scriptures and reason with them and things like that. That's in Luke chapter 2, toward the end of uh, Luke chapter 2. So Jesus answered them. In other words, he didn't go to college, okay? And he didn't advance on to these advanced fancy schools. Uh, so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now this is kind of the key verse of the passage. That as far as like people who desire to do God's will, they'll know what the truth is. And this is kind of like a good guide that you can know all the Bible and have it all memorized and if you did, I would think it wouldn't be very easy for you to be a real despicable person. But yet, there's stories of that being the case. But the test is, the litmus test is, do you really want to do God's will? Do you really want to obey? 
And when you find somebody whose heart is really yielded, that wants to obey, then you're going to find good teaching. And good teaching leads to this will to do God's will, but um, it's not so much how much of the Bible you know, but how much you want to obey. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, There's an Aramaic translation of this verse that actually it's in the notes of this little Passion translation. That it translates this verse as this. Whoever is satisfied to do God's satisfaction shall gain liberating knowledge. Whoever is satisfied to do God's satisfaction shall gain liberating knowledge. Kind of a cool way to put it. Let's go on. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. And of course he's talking about the Father. The Father sent me, and I'm not trying to just glorify myself. I'm trying to glorify the Father. That's what I'm doing here. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Now at first I was thinking, boy, that's a pretty harsh thing to say. But then I was reading some of the notes about it, and this was a way for people in the first century in Israel to say, are you a lunatic? Because lunacy and demon possession were hand in hand in in their culture and in their thought patterns. So it could not so much be an insult that they're actually literally saying you have a demon, although the words are the words, but it's implying you're crazy. No one's trying to kill you, but they are because Jesus is speaking the truth, right? So they are trying to kill him. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Now, if you don't remember from the history what the one work was, it was that they were at the pool of Bethesda and it was a Sabbath. It was a Saturday when they weren't supposed to do any work. And he comes up to this guy and says, do you want to be well? And the guy says to him, "Uh, I don't have anybody to let me down into the water. Because according to their little tradition, there was an angel that stirred the waters and whoever could hop in first got healed. And so... Instead of saying, yes, Jesus, I want to be healed. He has an excuse. I can't get up. But Jesus heals him regardless. And he tells him, pick up your mat and go home. And he heals this guy totally on a Sabbath. And this is what people were marveling at. Because there was lots of people around. Everybody saw it. There's other instances of Jesus teaching in a synagogue on a Sabbath where somebody has a shriveled up hand. And Jesus, just just to like... His purpose wasn't to infuriate the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but it sure did. He gets him in front of everybody, and he says, you know, is it right to heal on the Sabbath, to restore somebody, or just let them keep suffering? And then he heals the guy's hand, and he does it on Sabbath. And he's, he's showing people he's restoring things. He's healing people. He's making things better. He's bringing the kingdom, which in Romans it says that the kingdom of God is not uh, food and drink, but it's righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. That's a a good thought. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. They were told in Genesis chapter 17 that Abraham was given a sign of his covenant. When his name was changed from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many nations, and Sarai was changed to Sarah, 
the sign of that covenant was circumcision. And he says that Moses didn't actually give you that, meaning that it wasn't a Mount Sinai revelation when Moses lived, but yet Moses wrote Genesis. So he recorded the events from centuries earlier that dealt with Abraham. And what they would do in Genesis 17, you look it up, and God said, on the eighth day, I want all of your descendants to be circumcised. And this isn't a debate about, you know, whether we're going to circumcise our babies or, or not. You know, that's for you as families to figure out because we're under a new covenant and we're not Jewish people. But if you are Jewish, then praise the Lord. It's awesome, you know. But this is something that the Jews have interpreted very strictly that the Christian church in Acts 15 clearly said, hey, you can come to Christ and you don't have to be circumcised. But originally, there was a spiritual purpose for it among the Jews. And there still is today. Is everybody with me? So Genesis 17 says on the eighth day. So like 700 years after this is given or 600 years or so after that, is given. We're talking about 2100 BC, 2000 BC with Abraham thereabouts. And then 1400 BC, Moses records that this happens and says that you won't do any work on the Sabbath. And so rabbis would do the work of circumcising these babies and they would actually do it on Sabbath. If the eighth day after birth fell on a Saturday, then they would take care of the baby's circumcision on that day. So what Jesus is saying is that you guys will circumcise babies on this day and yet I can't heal a shriveled hand and make a guy well or I can't heal a whole body, you know, and make somebody's life wonderful after 40 years of these people suffering. It's amazing what sometimes we could do to people in the name of religion. Do you know what I'm saying? So, uh, key lesson. Um, I'll give you an illustration I think I've given before. Back in the day, some of our churches were very legalistic. And I'm not going to name them by denomination. There's individual congregations through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, on through today, that were very legalistic. And I remember talking to one uh, pastor's wife and a previous pastor. She said that before her husband came to the Lord, that he was wearing a shirt that was a nice button-up shirt and pants, but like he had, he was a kind of a farm boy and, you know, nothing wrong with that. And he served as a rodeo clown and did all kinds of different fun things in his life. And he was wearing shiny buttons on his shirt. And so he comes to Sunday school, which was more common, you know, back in the day, they'd have Sunday school to begin with and then church worship service. And somebody says, you're a prideful person because you're wearing these shiny snaps on your Western shirt. I think, my hypothesis is this. As someone who came to the Lord in about 1996-97, I've done my fair share of, of negative you know, things in life, and, and I'm, I'm sure I'll continue to make mistakes. But I think that there's all kinds of people, maybe for every church person, are there four or five or six people out in the world who've had experiences like that where they're just like, well, if that's what faith is, count me out. Because they know in their own inner witness, their own inner life, they know that's not right to be that ungraceful and that tacky and that mean. Do you know what I'm saying? 
And yet back in the day, and it could even be still today, that kind of bondage or legalism, that kind of performance driven, that women better dress like this, and, and, and really kind of the expectations on men was kind of like, I think in some ways it, it was pretty low, but the expectations were really high on women is kind of what my estimation of these things are. So sorry, I didn't mean to get off, get off on that. But Becky remembers going to church, uh, a wonderful church, taught her doctrine, uh, awesome church, grown up in this Wesleyan church up in Montana. But she had somebody, was she your Sunday school teacher, Becky, who would get after her for coming to church with wet hair. And Becky would tell me the story, and I'd say, I don't get it. What was wrong with wet hair? And do you still get it, Becky? She still comes to church with wet hair. Do you know what I'm saying? Come to church with wet hair. Come to church with shiny buttons. Come to ch- You know, people say, what should I wear to church? Clothes. You should wear clothes to church. Don't come in your birthday suit, even if it's your birthday, okay? If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing of him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So there's lots of questions, lots of confusion going on. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So what didn't they know? They didn't realize that he was originally born in Bethlehem and then went to Egypt. And then the family was going to move back to that area by Jerusalem. But then instead they decided to go up to Nazareth. And that's where he grew up from. That's why our particular church is called the Church of the Nazarene. It's just a nice way of saying the Church of Jesus. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me but and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. Who sent Jesus? The Father. God the Father. Okay, you got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So the religious authorities, this is six months before they really will arrest him, but they actually charge their temple guards, go get him, arrest him, and bring him back here. Uh, But the story goes on, and we'll come back to this arrest thing. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Again, they're confused. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Okay, that was what I was talking about. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Do you know what he's talking about, where he's going, that these authorities won't be able to go? Heaven. He's going to go back with the Father. Now, there's a big contrast with people who oppose Jesus. Now, think about this. He says to them who oppose him. In other words, they don't believe. It's not just that you oppose Jesus, because before we believed, we all opposed Jesus, okay? It's not like somebody's like, oh, I was a Christian from the beginning. No, nobody's born a Christian. Your, your grandma might have been really awesome, and your great-grandpa might have founded, you know, whatever religious movement or been a bishop or whatever. But that doesn't get you into the kingdom. It might not even get them into the kingdom. You have to believe in order 
to come into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the contrast is, if you don't believe in Jesus, he says, you can't come where I'm going. But over in John 14, to those of us who believe, he says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms or dwellings, or the King James says mansions. And I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be with me also. So for those of us who believe, we already have a home, a dwelling that is prepared for us by Jesus. What a wonderful promise for all of eternity. That's a big contrast between not believing where Jesus says you can't come if you don't believe. Jesus said, or the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And you might say, what's the dispersion? What are they talking about? Well, the Jews lived in the Holy Land in ancient times, but they dispersed, and it's called the diaspora. In the 6th century before Jesus, so like 586 years before Jesus, they were dispersed over to Babylon. Now, even though a lot of them came back to Jerusalem, a lot of them remained back in Babylon. They were up in this Turkey area. They were even as, as high up here as the Ukraine area. This is that little island that Russia just confiscated from the Ukrainians a couple years ago. Uh, they were in northern Egypt. Alexandria was where I think more Jews lived there than any other place in Alexandria. Uh, they were in Rome. They were in Spain, France, uh, the Balkans, Greece. And in all these lands, and over here in Cyrene and northern uh, Sicily, you know, maybe you had some Jewish mafia. I don't know. But... Uh, in all these places, this was the dispersion, and they all spoke Greek. So that's why they say to Jesus, are you going to go to the dispersion? Uh, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? He's talking about heaven. He's talking about heaven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And what this is, back in a long time ago, 1400 years before, Moses had been told uh, by God, I want you to speak to that rock and out of it will come all this water. And 40 years earlier, he'd taken his, his walking stick, his rod, and he'd hit the rock and a bunch of water came out. And Moses was mad 40 years later when God said, I want you to speak to the rock, don't hit the rock. So this is in Numbers 20. And Moses is mad with the people. And instead of speaking to the rock and just saying, hey, rock, I want water. Or whatever Moses would have said. You know, you could think about that on your way home. He takes his rod and he hits it twice. Boom, boom. And then water comes out. And God says, guess what? You don't get to enter the holy land, the promised land, because you did not uh, hallow my name among the people. And what it was supposed to be, both rock experiences were supposed to be a prophetic picture of Jesus. That he struck like the, the rock, because in Corinthians it says that he is the rock that followed them in the wilderness. Which is kind of weird, but it says it, so I believe it. The first time that rock was hit, meaning that Christ suffered on the cross. You can picture him on the cross at Jerusalem. And that was where water literally came out of his side. And that's where our redemption comes from. But the second time, 
you know, Moses was supposed to just speak to the rock. And what that is, is that's a picture of Pentecost. That the, the believers prayed and they received the Holy Spirit, right? So it's a, a, a beautiful picture, but Moses messed it up a little bit. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Uh, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one's ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I'm going to skip past that. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man? without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so that's the end of the scripture there. But um, Nicodemus is a reasonable man. And he says, you know, if you're going to judge him by the law, then you've got to follow what the law says. And what the law says is that you give somebody a hearing first. I'm reading a book right now, and I, I'll just briefly... Uh, tell you and show you what this book is and not to take one side or the other but it's a very interesting book about the Kavanaugh hearings that were was it about a year ago or so I think that Brett Kavanaugh was nominated by the president to serve on the Supreme Court and this book it's I saw it in Costco and it's by a couple uh, journalists and writers it's called Justice on Trial and on page 163 of this book it says this, and they were talking about how accusations came forward, and then it's like, well, you want to give the person who's accused a fair hearing. So think about this in context of Jesus, and think about it in the context of your own life, that you know what it's like, you know, to be falsely accused of something. Most everybody does, and it's a, it's a serious thing. Um, Justice Edward White, in a case called Coffin versus United States, said this, quote, the principle that there's a presumption of innocence in favor of the accused is the undoubted law, axiomatic and elementary. So that means that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. But it's so much like fallen human beings to just take the accused and assume they're guilty right away. And that's what they did with Jesus. But Nicodemus was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Um, so this Justice Edward White in this law decision traced this idea of, of, it's in the Constitution, right, that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. They trace it from the book of Deuteronomy through Roman law, canon law, and the common law. And this justice illustrated it with an anecdote about a 4th century provincial governor who was on trial before the Roman Emperor Julian for embezzlement. And here you have a picture of the Roman Emperor Julian. So... This wasn't a justice that was on our modern Supreme Court. It's just that Kavanaugh went through this sort of a, a thing, so they talk about it. So uh, the governor who was accused of embezzlement, his name was Numerius. And the guy who was accusing him, that guy's name was Delphidius. Don't you love their names? 
So you parents that might have a baby, I mean, I know it's too late for Bonnie Sue, but Numerius or Delphidius would have been pretty cool. Numerius contented himself with denying his guilt, and there was not sufficient proof against him. His adversary, Delphidius, was a passionate man. Seeing that the failure of the accusation was inevitable, he could not restrain himself and said this to the emperor. He said, O illustrious Caesar, if it's sufficient to deny, what will become of the guilty? So think about that. If it's sufficient just to deny that you did anything wrong, then what's going to become of the guilty? To which the wise Emperor Julian replied, If it suffices to accuse, what will become of the innocent? Isn't that good? Where someone says, if someone can just deny that they did wrong, then what's going to become of the guilty? And the emperor knew better. And he said, well, if it's sufficient to accuse, then what will become of everyone who's innocent? So they did it, though. They got away. It's six months before they accused Jesus and crucified Jesus, and yet they got away with it. And yet in the end, the fact that Jesus rose from the grave showed us the greatest hope that's ever been known to mankind. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8.18, For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glories that will be revealed to us. So whatever it is that you're going through that might confuse you, that might perplex you, that might disorient you, that you don't fully understand, realize that you can give yourself permission to enjoy yourself and enjoy the peace of God despite confusion, despite the circumstances that are around you. You don't have to figure it all out because that might be the very thing that the devil wants to trip you up on to steal your peace as you meditate about it over and over and over again. That Why didn't this work out? Or why is this happening to me? Or whatever it is. It actually turns out, I believe this is the truth, that God doesn't answer why. What we should be asking is, God, what does this now mean for my relationship with you? And I told you earlier to look at that poster. I want you to look at this one as we close. Final scripture. It says, trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths in other words he will make your paths straight 